Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Today marks 10 years since the Sandy Hook school shooting. Among the survivors are children at the school on December 14, 2012, innocent children with lives forever changed by gun violence. Jordan Gomes climbed a rope in the gym in the moments before 20 children and six educators were killed. Jordan, just nine years old, a fourth grader. She's now a sophomore at Fordham University in the Bronx, and she now advocates against the type of gun violence that's changed her life. We recorded this conversation on Monday, December 12th, 2022. She joins us now. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's no problem. Thank you guys for having me, as always. <laughs> I'm hoping that you can share whatever you can, whatever you feel like you, you can uh, describe to us what it was like for you or what sticks with you, at least. It started like pretty much every other day. Uh, I was in the gym at the time, and I remember being very, very excited because uh, we had set up the ropes, like the ones that go all the way to the ceiling, and I was very excited to do something that wasn't like dodgeball because I wasn't very good at it. So I remember being very excited for gym class that morning, and we were all sitting around listening to our gym teacher explain how to work the ropes and, you know, all the safety procedures until we heard this really loud like bang in the hallway and all our heads just kind of like whipped towards the door and we went quiet for a second just listening and it sort of sounded like somebody had dropped something metal like really like close to the door basically it was very loud so we had just kind of assumed that the janitor might have dropped something like on their way through the building and for a second we went back to just you know, talking about the ropes because there that was like the first shot that we heard. And then suddenly we heard two more, like really quick, one after the other. And at that point, I think my um, gym teacher figured out that something was going on, obviously before most of us. Uh, we were just confused, at least I can only speak for myself, really, but I feel as though that I would properly assess my classmates and saying that with, that was not the first thing on our minds. And I've said that like multiple times is that, especially when you're so young, such a horrible reality is not the first thing to come to your brain. So she kind of ushered us all into the corner and was like, all right, everybody's going to be quiet. Everybody's going to you know, play the quiet game. Like we're not going to talk. We're not going to like laugh or do anything. She ran over to lock the doors and uh, there we sat. And obviously we were a bit confused at that point because normally I think uh, in school they kind of announce the drills, you know, when there's a fire alarm, it's like, you know, um, an emergency has been reported, please evacuate the building. Or even when there's like a shelter in place drill for like extreme weather, uh, there's something that comes on the loudspeaker, but we weren't hearing that. We were just hearing these really strange, loud noises and nobody really knew what was going on, but 
the longer we sat there, I think the more scared we started to get just because of how long it was going on and how serious our teacher was acting. It became clear, I think, even if we didn't really know the gravity of the situation, that this wasn't any sort of drill and something bad was actually happening. And I think once that realization set in, we both or all of us were very scared because we also had no idea what was going on. It wasn't something we could like mentally prepare for. And is that especially, uh, I think, intensified after the loudspeaker came on and it came on like pretty like soon after um, we like came into the corner and we started hearing very muffled voices like, you know, screaming and more of the shots, which, you know, obviously we didn't know were shots at the time, but uh, over the loudspeaker and some voice that was saying something to us who couldn't really make it out. I mean, even like years later, like I, to me, it sounded like, you know, like run, get out, like that sort of thing, like run, run, like leave, like that sort of thing until it just clicked off. This was the loudspeaker that accidentally came on at some point during the shooting or uh, I understand it. I like to believe that it was not accidental. It very well could have been. But part of me knows that the educators that were killed in that office were trying to protect the kids that they cared about so much. I very much I very much believe that, like, you know, no matter who it could have been, I don't know. And I don't think we ever will. I do believe that they intended for us to hear at least some part of that message, like, you know, to get out, to run, like, you know, that something bad was happening. Because even if, you know, when the kids heard that, we were just scared because it was very out of the ordinary. We couldn't figure out what was going on. It was just very confusing and scary all around for a bunch of eight and nine-year-olds. But our teacher, on the other hand, had a obviously much better grasp. So I do believe that if it was on purpose, it was meant for the teachers to grasp what was going on and protect the kids because they would understand if they heard something like that, even if we wouldn't. How long were you guys hiding for and who got you? Um, I can't say exactly how long. Um, at one point, we had to crawl across the gym floor and move into like a storage closet on the opposite side of the room. And at that point, I didn't have any view of like clock or anything, but we were in there for like a decent amount of time. And I remember, you know, sitting there and holding hands with, you know, the kids in my class and everybody was just crying really quietly and shaking and very, very scared, myself included. We were terrified, like, honestly. And we heard the doors to the actual gym open because at this point we were inside a closet and we heard like these noises, these people talking, like the sound of almost like big boots on the floor and it's like a gym floor. So it kind of echoes. And I just remember all of us going like so quiet, like just looking at each other, like waiting. Cause I think at this point, I myself anyways, had an idea that maybe there was somebody in this school who wasn't supposed to be. Somebody had like come in here maybe and, or some something was in the school that was not supposed to be. And that was why we were hiding. Cause at this point it had progressed from a drill to hiding because we had never gone in the closet before. So we all just went very quiet and we're just looking at each other like 
almost waiting for whoever had come into the gym to open our door. And we had no idea what would happen once they did. We had no idea who this person was or who it was. We got, honestly, I didn't even know it was like a person at first. We were just waiting. And I think that suspense was just so, I think that was probably the most like notable aspect of that day. Like, you know, it's difficult to grow up and look back at that day as I have and look back at how I felt and recognize that at nine years old, I was sitting in a closet waiting to die because we didn't know it at that point, but that was what we were scared of. And uh, after that, they did knock on our door and we all just kind of stayed quiet and they told us they were the police. And um, I don't remember if there was any communication between my, uh, my teacher and them, but they did open the door. And I just remember a lot of men in like SWAT uniforms just kind of clustered around the door, leading us out, just telling us, you know, put your hands on the shoulders of the person in front of you and don't open your eyes. Like, do not open your eyes. Like, we are going to lead you outside and you're going to follow us. And that's just going to be that. And so they let us out of the building and all the way down the road to the firehouse. And your brother, how old was he? Um, my brother would have been about seven. You wonder, do you understand how, what he went through that day was, was, was he in a similar situation where he was hiding that kind of thing? Um, yes, actually. My brother doesn't really speak on this too much at all, really. I, he doesn't really like to, but, um, he was in the classroom across from Ms. Soto's classroom. And when they found the shooter, he was attempting to break into his classroom. So honestly, like, you know, part of coming to terms with Sandy Hook was also coming to terms with the fact that if, you know, they were just a minute later, I could have also lost my brother. So that was a big part of it for me is realizing that, you know, not only was my life in danger, but my brother's life was everybody that I cared about, all of my friends in the school, their siblings. It's a very difficult realization for a child to think that you can go into an area where you are expected to go every day and feel safe and learn and see your friends and your teachers. And that space can be taken away from you. And that space can become like a war zone for lack of a better word. What was the night the following days like uh, for your family and you guys? What was your parents saying to you? My parents didn't really go into it the day of. They just told us that we would talk about it the following day. And we turned off the TV and, you know, at that point we were quite young, so we didn't really have social media or anything that we could look on. So we went to bed that night, not really knowing what had happened until the following couple days, they started to talk to us about it and had told us that um, somebody had come in and they had used a gun on some people that we knew and they had passed away. And my mom and dad, like, you know, specifically mentioned that, you know, Miss Hawksprung had passed away, like Miss Soto had passed away, like, you know, and uh, my friend's siblings had passed away. And it was just very surreal. Like, I don't 
think in the beginning, actually, I like processed it very well because I remember being very like shocked and my parents were like concerned because I didn't really register it almost. But, you know, the next couple days after it sunk in, it definitely started to take a toll on me. Like I started having like, you know, anxiety attacks, like crying fits, like things like that. My brother as well. So the aftermath set in pretty quickly once we sort of had a good grasp over what was going on. Are there, are there any triggers to this day that kind of, I don't know, trigger that anxiety or that, uh, maybe the confusion that you had that day? Is there any, anything that could make you kind of feel similar to that? Honestly, for the longest time, I thought I got away with having like very few or like very, you know, I, I didn't think I had any triggers that made me like anxious or like, you know, sparked a little bit of like PTSD or anything like that. Um, you know, obviously I knew that like, you know, talking about it was a little difficult and, you know, the anniversary would always be difficult. But um, my freshman year of high school, I was sitting in like homeroom you know, our home, our equivalent of homeroom, uh, you know, just waiting for the day to start. And somebody, I guess, like leaned on the loudspeaker button and like it started like crackling and like you could hear kind of like muffled voices. Like it clearly was not meant to be on. And I just like panicked. Like I remember like freezing in my seat and just like going cold and just sitting there like staring at the loudspeaker just like waiting for them to like say something and looking around at my classmates none of whom had noticed they were still talking laughing like you know going about as normal and just you know like it stopped me in my tracks right then and there and I realized that it really like the noises and like the combination of the loudspeaker crackling and the muffled noises really reminded me of what I'd heard that day. And something in me just instinctually was like, hide, run. Something's happening. Like, you know, just this, this very like deep seated fear, I guess, came to light. I understand that it, this is the most traumatic event I would imagine that you've ever gone through that like you would have post-traumatic stress from something like this. So how do you cope? Like if you get anxiety, like be as honest as you can, I would really appreciate it. But like, how, how do you cope? How, what are, what are some mechanisms that you can go to to help you out? In terms of coping, it really depends on how I'm feeling in that particular moment. Over the summer, um, I was at the March for Our Lives rally, the, um, you know, the second one that was held with members of the March for Our Lives team. And while uh, some people were on stage, there was actually a shooting threat or what we thought was a shooting threat. Uh, During a moment of silence, somebody had started yelling. And I guess the crowd thought he had said something about having a gun. So, of course, it sparked a lot of panic. People started running. You know, there were screams and Obviously, I was backstage with many survivors from many different events, and all of us just immediately were panicking and just at like, you know, like breathing like very quickly, like, you know, needing to sit down, feeling faint, lightheaded. And in that moment, the only thing I could do and that I usually do is just put like two fingers on like my pulse and just 
try to breathe very deeply. And I was actually doing this exercise with another survivor from the Oxford shooting. And like, you know, we had our hands like reached across, um, you know, and on each other's pulses. So her fingers were on mine and mine were on hers. And we were just breathing in unison, just saying that, you know, breathe, it's going to be okay. Nothing's going on. He doesn't have a gun. It's okay. He was just yelling. It's okay. Like just words of like affirmation like that, that things are okay. If there's a situation in which like, I am not experiencing an event like that. It's not like an extremely like triggering event. And I just happen to be being very overwhelmed by it, um, which happens sometimes. I will practice pretty much those same coping mechanisms, or I'll just try to get away from people and just like sit down by myself for a second and take a couple deep breaths. It helps to remove yourself from the situation, I think. That helps me anyways. How were you able to become an advocate? Like what triggered that? Like what made you go against gun violence and be able to show up at some of these vigils and some of these, uh, I understand you speak to people at Congress. Uh, you've worked for Senator Blumenthal. Like how does this happen for you? I was always a very outspoken kid, you know, kind of one of the kids that, uh, adults would be like, you're going to be a lawyer one day. You know, that was phrase has said to me like a million times. And so it was almost a natural progression for me because it was already something I was extremely passionate about even before getting into high school, which is when I started working with the Junior Newtown Action Alliance and Poe Murray. Um, I was just a very passionate like social justice advocate. Obviously, I was you know, 12, 13, 14, I didn't have much of an outlet for that, but I was consuming all sorts of content on social media related to these things, you know, like anti-racist, feminist uh, literature, sorts of things like that. So when I got into high school and, you know, at this point I had really narrowed down that my, you know, issue of choice, the one that I was most closely related to and the one that I most closely wanted to work towards was, you know, gun violence. And I saw that the Junior Town Action Alliance was having a meeting. And at that point, I had known no other groups that were operating in the same way, like, you know, a youth group dedicated to ending gun violence. So of course, I really wanted to go. And I showed up with some of my friends and, you know, met with some of the older kids, you know, who are probably juniors and seniors at that point who are leading it and really just felt at home. So afterwards, after the meeting, I went up to Poe Murray and introduced myself and I introduced myself to her as a survivor, which was probably the first time I ever did that because I genuinely, I generally avoided telling people directly that I was a survivor. I think I had a sort of fear of people thinking I was attention seeking or, you know, not being able to really provide any other sort of information other than that. Cause I was quite young at the time. And usually when people figured out that I had been there, which, you know, even if I didn't tell them was sort of inevitable just because you know, like we all live in the same town, just talking to people, you would figure out people's relation to such an event. Um, I didn't have much to offer like I wanted to. I didn't have like, you know, any sort of 
in my opinion, I didn't have anything groundbreaking to say yet. I just wanted to tell someone that I had gone through something and that I had been inspired to, you know, turn to action. And she sort of looked at me and was like, really? Because I think I was the first one that had ever come up to her because my class was the first class of Sandy Hook kids that was in, um, in the high school. So I was one of the first to tell her about my, my story. And I talked to her for a little bit and she told me, you know what? Some of the junior NAA leaders are doing a interview with, um, I, I remember it very, very clearly. It was my first ever interview and we think you should come. And I just remember being like, oh, are you sure? Like, I don't want to take up anybody else's space. Like they're the leaders of this organization. I'm not a leader. I just joined like five seconds ago. Like, are you sure? Are you sure? And she just kept telling me, of course we are. Of course. Like we want to hear from you. Like this is why we created this club is to hear from people like you and to have people like you really using their voices and leading it. And so it really just took off from there. I will say that the Newton Action Alliance has provided me with so many of the opportunities that I've gotten. And even if uh, I have engaged in, you know, separate, separate work, they were the ones that gave me the platform initially, gave me like so many stepping stones in the beginning. And it is so meaningful for me to know that like I have the support of like my hometown organization that I've been with for five years now, going on five years anyways. So from then, it was just learning to speak out more, learning to really just use my voice in a way that I thought mattered. And it was one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done, getting involved in this sort of work. It's very, very rewarding for me to feel like I'm making a difference somewhere. Jordan, we call on you a lot at Connecticut Public to get your perspective on gun violence and the Sandy Hook school shooting. And I would say that we are forever in your debt uh, to your, forever in debt to your bravery and your courage. So thank you for helping us out again, Jordan. Of course, anytime. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's really, really great to talk about this. And, you know, with the 10 year anniversary, we're all feeling a lot of different things, but, you know, centering the conversation around survivors and those affected is very helpful in making this conversation about the things that matter most, things that aren't partisan. From Connecticut Public, this is Frankie Graziano. You're listening to Where We Live. You can join the conversation if you're listening. 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. If you could use some help with your mental health today, give 988 a call. That's the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is where we live for Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Tons and tons of effects came in from across the globe. People trying to support people that lost loved ones. Truckloads and truckloads of donations poured into Newtown after the shooting. There was love, and there was also, if you could believe it, hate. Our next guest says that it's the first mass tragedy to spawn hate from people on the Internet against reality. Elizabeth Williamson, I think she's joining us via Zoom, writer at the New York Times and author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth, I really mean this. How are you doing today? Hey, Frankie. I'm, I'm great, and I'm thinking, of course, of all the victims' families this morning. Thank you so much for that, Elizabeth. I appreciate that. I just want to remind folks if they're listening and they need to call somebody today or talk about this, they can give us a call at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. A quote attributed to Slate about Sandy Hook, an American tragedy in the battle for truth, is that it's painfully compelling. Your writing begins with accounts of what responders saw at the scene the day of the shooting. There's a journey into the firehouse, the place of fading hope, and a father's middle-of-the-night walk past crime scene tape to be with his deceased son. Why chronicle in great detail this tragedy, Elizabeth? So, Frankie, I felt like even though the book really is about the aftermath of Sandy Hook and how Sandy Hook became a kind of foundational story of how disinformation and false narratives have spread in society in the decades since the shooting, I needed to, at the beginning, establish the baseline truth of what actually happened that day, and also to point to the voluminous public record of the tragedy and what happened um, as a way of saying, you know, this, this information is out there, and anyone who is denying that the shooting took place is not only badly misguided, but completely out of touch with the facts. President Barack Obama says in the days after the shooting, he reacted not as a president, but as anyone else would as a parent. And then there's one quote I read in your book that comes from a Sandy Hook parent, something he, she, or they told the Arizona State University. I do I do not live as a free person in America. I am a tra- tragic public figure. How do we as a collective society bungle a natural response to one of the worst things that's ever happened to us? I think that um, Sandy Hook in many ways, although we have sadly had many mass shootings in this country, both before and since, 
um, was a watershed moment in a lot of ways. The youth of the victims, the the just the horror of uh, what had took taken place, um, the terrible swiftness of it. Um, I think people on both sides of the gun debate knew that this would be a pivotal moment in that national discussion. And for a certain segment of Americans, um, and they were unfortunately led by Alex Jones of InfoWars, um, who had tens of millions of listeners even then, um, it was denying the shooting became a strange sort of terrible tool in the, the toolkit of those who would push back against any form of new gun policy. In the book, you talk with Daniel Malloy, who's the former governor of Connecticut. And uh, I'm not going to be able to ask you about that today because I'm running around to try to ask you a bunch of questions here because this book is so important to get through. Governor Malloy is going to be, former Governor Malloy is going to be on Colin McEnroe's show here on Connecticut Public later today at one o'clock. I want to switch gears and talk about somebody who's a, who's, a, who's a big focus in the book. For the last four years, you spent a lot of time your personal time here on infamous conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, the InfoWars host sued here in Connecticut by a former FBI agent and relatives of eight Sandy Hook victims for defamation, now facing $1.5 billion in damages owed to the plaintiffs, even had a chilly encounter with Jones at his not-so-secret Aston, Texas InfoWars studios. What can you tell our listeners about who Jones really is? Alex Jones um, is someone who one of his former employees said to me, you know, people ask me a lot, does he really believe that the Sandy Hook shooting was staged or that it was a hoax? And, you know, as he had said for years, that it was a so-called false flag operation, a government pretext for confiscating Americans' firearms. And what this former employee told me was, it doesn't matter what Alex Jones thinks about the shooting. What does matter is that he has these tens of millions of people who tune into his online and his radio show. And if only a small percentage of those believe what he's saying, um, that is certainly enough, as we have seen, to ignite years of torment against the victims' families. Um, what he does is he has an uh, you know kind of cruelly ingenious business model in that he sells products that are geared toward the paranoias and fears of his audience. So he would be broadcasting about Sandy Hook, denying that it happened, calling the families actors, encouraging people to do their own research, which led to a lot of confrontation of the victims' families, and. Um, at the same time, he would be hawking products. So um, doomsday prepper gear, you know, dried food for your shelter. If you felt like we were in imminent danger of a government takeover of society, um, diet supplements and quack cures for people who were suspicious of traditional medicine and established science. And he would be selling these products while he was denying that the shooting took place. And he was earning upwards of 50 to $70 million a year in revenues by selling these things. So for him, Denying Sandy Hook was a business proposition. The day the shooting happened, he goes into this long thing that we heard in court a lot about they're coming, they're coming, they're coming after after guns because this is a globalist conspiracy uh, in, in his mind. And so he finishes this long, drawn-out 
thing where he's trying to implore his his viewers to understand that there's a conspiracy theory that's happening. And then he tries to sell subscriptions to the his his InfoWars magazine. So Alex Jones, I would understand it, Elizabeth, very much first, despite saying that it was other people that got him out of this conspiracy. Yes, he was denying Sandy Hook and starting to call it um, a government plot a hoax um, within hours after the shooting. And after he learned what the toll was and the magnitude of this tragedy, um, he only doubled down in that because he could see that denying that the shooting took place was one possible tool for him to push back against any kind of new gun legislation. He recently declared personal bankruptcy. It, it kind of seemed like that was maybe the last card to play. But his his biggest creditors are are plaintiffs suing him for defamation over the Sandy Hook lies. Where are the families in their attempts to make Jones pay them uh, $1.5 billion in damages? Yeah, so Frankie, just to recap for your audience. So in mid-2018, um, the families of 10 Sandy Hook victims sued Jones Um, in Texas and in Connecticut for defamation. They filed four separate lawsuits later combined into three. Um, Four years, Jones stonewalled the legal process. So they were going through the discovery process and he was refusing to submit business and financial records, audience information and testimony that was ordered by the courts. So after four years of this stonewalling, The courts in both Texas and Connecticut found him liable by default, which meant he had lost all of those cases. So he was liable for defaming the families with the lies that he'd been spreading about Sandy Hook. And that set the stage. That was late last year. And that set the stage for three trials for damages, um, two of them in Texas and one in Connecticut. So the one that... um, listeners uh, here would know most about is, of course, the Connecticut case, which was brought by, as you said, the families of eight Sandy Hook victims and an FBI agent who was implicated in Jones's lies about the shooting. Um, Earlier in the summer, uh, Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis, the parents of Jesse Lewis, who died at Sandy Hook, won um, a nearly $50 million judgment against Jones. Um, There is a third trial that is scheduled for March 27th, and that's in the case of Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, whose son Noah Posner was the youngest Sandy Hook victim. So the damages are mounting. And as the first trial, the the Neil Heslin Scarlett Lewis trial, came to its conclusion, Jones put his parent company, Free Speech Systems, into bankruptcy. Just in the last couple of weeks, He also declared personal bankruptcy. This is seen by the families as a delaying tactic. They don't believe that he's actually bankrupt. Um, They they think he is hoping to sort of wear them down um, and make them wait years for judgment. But really what's happened is that judgment has already been delivered on Alex Jones and the lies that he spread. And as that, just sort of a message to other people who would deny the shooting and other would-be Alex Joneses. And that's what's meant the most to the families, not the money which they, you know, could wait years to receive, but really the message that it's not just about Sandy Hook. Now, 20% of Americans believe that every high-profile mass shooting was staged by the mm. government. We have seen noxious conspiracy theories attach themselves to every major trauma in this country, whether you're talking about elections, the 2020 
election conspiracies that brought a mob to the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, or you're talking about the coronavirus myths, or you're talking about, as we are now, you know, every mass shooting. So that's what the families wanted to tell Americans, that this is not a one-off, that this is a terrible development in our society, and that it's not only harming vulnerable people like the Sandy Hook families. It's eroding our democracy. That's their message. Attorneys for the family saying that they're going to get every dime back that they can from Jones and that they're their biggest creditors now as they try to get through the bankruptcy process, try to get as much money as they can from Jones. It's not just Jones who's profiled in your book for spreading conspiracy theorists. There's great mom, the Tulsa, Oklahoma woman named Kelly Watt that harassed Noah Posner's father, Lenny, and Brendan Hunt, the eventual insurrectionist, as I understand it, that showed up at the front door of a man that took in survivors on 1214. What's it about these people that makes them latch on to conspiracy theories or allows them to latch on to conspiracy theory? What, what do you learn about them? Yeah, one of the um, the goals of the book, Frankie, was to try and explain by way of pushing back against this, you know, what can we do by sort of learning a little bit about, well, actually a lot about people who embrace these theories. And someone like Kelly Watt, she's a mom, a grandma. She's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, she would send horrific messages to the family members, telling them to exhume their children's bodies and prove to the world you lost your son, um, that type of thing. And she was someone who had a lot of trauma in her background, but she's also very conspiracy minded. And back in the 90s, she began to believe, for example, that liberals in the Department of Education were seeking to indoctrinate Tulsa's public school children. And she waged this intense to you know sort of campaign to try and alert people to what she thought was a fact um it was badly misguided but she pursued you know members of the school boards it's kind of a thing that echoes finds its echo now you know in battles inside school boards and um and in the public school system and in libraries but she embraced this early on but the difference back then in the 90s was that we didn't have the internet. So the local paper refused to give her an airing. The local media affiliates didn't pay any attention to her and her campaign soon fizzled. But she embraced Sandy Hook and then she had the internet. So that put her in touch with an entire network of Sandy Hook deniers. It made her elevated as a kind of citizen journalist and an investigator. She contributed a chapter to a book that was built around denying that the shooting took place. So she had had a home cleaning business and suddenly she had really elevated herself in her own mind by embracing this theory. She found a social group, she had a group of friends, she found some status for herself in her mind among these, these misguided people. And when people do that, it is really hard to persuade them to loosen their grip on these theories because they're getting so much more out of it. They're reinventing themselves. They're, they're raising their status. They've found some social standing. And so embracing these theories is what they do to sort of maintain that status. So the trick really is, researchers are saying, trying to get people who are conspiracy minded like that and kind of teach them how to, when they find these theories in the wild, um, understand that this is an effort to manipulate them 
and they'll be more likely to report these theories or at least not to spread them. I wish I could talk to you more about this. I, all I could do right now is tell people that they should read Elizabeth's book, Sandy Hook, and American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. In it, you'll find Elizabeth illustrating in vivid detail the reality of the tragedy. Her profiles are real Americans vulnerable to this venom spewed by America's chief conspiracy theorists and firsthand encounters with the person that started it all. It's real journalism from a trusted source, uh, really, or excuse me, from a real trusted journalist. I got my copy at Barnes & Noble. Follow Elizabeth at NYT Liz on Twitter for more information. Thank you so much for joining us today, Liz. Frankie, thank you for inviting me. From Connecticut Public, I'm Frankie Graziano. This is Where We Live. Coming up next, a profile on 10 years of grief. Jimmy Green talks about the catastrophic loss of his daughter, Anna. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Anna Grace Marquez Green was one of 20 children killed in the shooting at the Sandy Hook School that happened 10 years ago today. I spoke to her father, Jimmy Green, about Anna and his grief. Green is an accomplished saxophonist. That's him playing at his office at Western Connecticut State University earlier this month. He's an educator, a recording artist, and a band leader. As a composer, I've uh, written uh, dozens and dozens of songs. Green lost his daughter 10 years ago at Sandy Hook. He says music isn't necessarily an outlet for his grief. He looks at making and playing music as more of a way to express how he's feeling in the best way he knows how. When someone is grieving, when someone is going through a tragic loss, uh, as I have, it's necessary to find every way possible to express that. So music is one of the ways in which I express how I'm feeling. I mean, that's my job as an artist, right? To express my reality or my life. Green produced two albums in Anna's memory, Beautiful Life and Flowers, Beautiful Life, Volume 2. Beautiful Life was nominated for two Grammy Awards. The process of making music is quite a beautiful one. In crafting these albums uh, in Anna's memory, there were a lot of tears, uh, there's a lot of reflection, there's a lot of memories, there's a lot of anger, uh, but ultimately there's a lot of love and there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of just gratefulness. Grateful that God chose to uh, give us this beautiful little girl and even though we only had her for six and a half years, uh, our lives were so much better having known her and having had her in our home for that bit of time. In Anna's way off Beautiful Life, Green's lyrics recall those six and a half years. Pretty dress up clothes to wear, bright bows, cute hair are just a part of her story. Heart so big and eyes so bright, Anna had a way about her. 
Most of the world after she was killed saw some pictures of her and I wanted to go a little deeper than that and describe a little bit more about her uh, as her dad. Those lyrics were trying to reflect a little bit about what Anna was about. Green obviously hasn't gotten over his daughter's death in the last 10 years. He says if anything, he's getting better at dealing with grief. There's a saying in our culture that time heals all wounds. I wouldn't say that that's true in my case. I would say that over time, I've become more familiar with the grief and uh, I'm able to manage it a bit more. He does credit faith leaders and mental health professionals for helping him, his wife Nelba, and his son Isaiah make it through these last 10 years. Frankie Graziano, Connecticut Public Radio. So grateful again to Jimmy, Isaiah, and Nelba for letting me tell Anna's story. It means a lot. You can hear more uh, from Jimmy and his, excuse me, from Jimmy in a story that we're doing tonight on Cutline, 10 years after Sandy Hook that airs at 8 o'clock on Connecticut Public Television. That song you just heard was Anna's Way, composed by Jimmy Green. He's playing saxophone on the instrumental version of that record. That audio of the Jimmy Green Quartet performance comes from 2016, courtesy of Vermont Public and the Flint Center. And I just wanted to let folks know that if you or someone you know can really use some mental health today, help, just give us a call, or excuse me, give a call to 988-988-FREE247, Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Shortly after 9.30 this morning, Newtown Police Department received a call for help at the Sandy Hook Elementary School here in, in Newtown. Uh, it's a very, very difficult scene. For the family members, for all the responding first responders, it's a tragedy. It's a tragic scene. We've endured too many of these tragedies in the past few years. And each time I learn the news, I react not as a president, but as anybody else would, as a parent. And that was especially true today. Out of that many people are aware of the intensity of individuals who claim that the massacre of our loved one in Sandy Hook School was a hoax, but who believe that all of us standing here are actors. For the life of me, I don't understand why, but the basic from it seemed to be that by denying this massacre, you can ignore gun violence. This is a promise to turn the conversation into actions. Things must change. This is the time. This is a promise we make to our precious children because each child, every human life, is filled with promise. And though we continue to be filled with unbearable pain, we choose love, belief, and hope instead of anger. If there is something in our society that needs to be fixed, clearly healed or resolved, that resolution needs a point of origin. It needs parents. Keep going. It's what Newtown has done over the last five years. It's what those families have found the courage to do over the last half a decade. For those of us who believe that the laws of this country 
must change in order to protect kids like those who lost their lives in Sandy Hook. It's what we do. Charlotte, Daniel, Olivia, Josephine, Anna, Dylan, Madeline, Catherine, Chase, Jesse, James, Grace, Emily, Jack, Noah, Caroline, Jessica, Benjamin, Aviel, Allison, Dawn, Mary, Vicki, Lauren, Rachel, and Anne Marie. God has called them all home. For those of us who remain, let us find the strength to carry on and make our country worthy of their memory. Thank you for listening to Where We Live, the show produced by Test Terrible today. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. You just heard Lieutenant Paul Vance of the Connecticut State Police, former President Barack Obama, Senator Chris Murphy and parents of victims, Dylan Hockley's mother, Nicole, Ben Wheeler's father, David, Gilles Rousseau, father of Sandy Hook victim, Lauren Rousseau. Again, thank you so much for listening today. Have a wonderful day. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app.